the introduction of alcinous to the doctrines of plato by alcinous translated by george burgess this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by geoffrey edwards one what philosophy is and what the person ought to be naturally who is about to be a philosopher the teaching of the peculiar opinions of plato would be something of this kind philosophy is a longing after wisdom or a release or withdrawal of the soul from the body while we are turning ourselves to what is perceived by mind and to things that exist truly now wisdom is the knowledge of things divine and human and the person called a philosopher is so named from it as a musician is for music. Now, it is necessary for such a person to be naturally disposed, in the first place, towards those kinds of learning that possess the power to fit him for, and lead him to, the knowledge of the existence, perceived by mind, and not of that which wanders about and is in a state of flowing. Next, he must have a love for truth, and by no means admit a falsehood. Moreover, he must be naturally temperate, and, as regards the portion of the soul, subject to being affected by circumstances, naturally subdued. For he, who is eager after instruction relating to things existing, and who turns to these his longing, will look upon pleasures with little admiration. It is requisite, too, for him, who is about to be a philosopher, to be mentally free. For, all little considerations are opposed to the soul that is about to contemplate subjects pertaining to God and man. And towards justice likewise it is requisite for him to be naturally disposed, as it is towards truth and freedom in thought and temperance. And there ought to be in addition an aptitude to learn, and a good memory. For these things form the species of a philosopher. Since these naturally good qualities when they meet with a proper education and fitting aliment, render a person perfect for virtue, but when they are neglected they become the cause of great mischief. And these Plato was accustomed to call by names similar to the virtues, temperance, and fortitude, and justice. 2. That, as contemplation takes the lead, action is necessary and follows. Since life is twofold, contemplative and active, of the former the chief point lies in the knowledge of truth, but of the latter in doing what is suggested by reason. The contemplative life, then, is the one held in honour, but the active that which follows and is necessary. That such is the case will be clear from hence. Contemplation is an operation of the mind, while it is thinking upon what is perceptible by mind, but action is an operation of the rational soul, perfected by means of the body. The soul, then, when contemplating the deity and the thoughts of the deity, is said to be in a good state, and this state goes by the name of intelligence, which a person would say is nothing else than an assimilation with the deity, and hence such would take the lead, and be held in honour, and be prayed for the most, and be the most appropriate for man, nor is it to be hindered, and is placed in our power, and it is the cause of the end laid down for us. 
but action and the active performed through the body can be hindered or may be carried on when the things which are seen during a contemplative life require a person to apply them to the moral conduct of man for he who is intent upon his duty will come to public affairs when he sees them improperly administered by some persons through his considering that to act as a general and a judge and an ambassador are things of circumstances but that the best in action and as taking the lead in it is that relating to legislation and statesmanship and the regulation and instruction of young persons it is proper then from what has been said for the philosopher to be never deficient in contemplation but to feed it ever and to increase it as being near to his proceeding on to a life of action three that the study of the philosopher rests according to plato on three points on viewing things that exist on doing what is correct and on the art of reasoning the study of the philosopher seems to rest according to plato on three points on the view and perception of things that exist on doing what is correct and on the theory itself of reasoning the perception of things that exist is contemplative but practical science is concerned about things to be done and dialectical about reasoning now this last is subdivided into the distributive and the definitive and the inductive and the syllogistic and this last into the demonstrative which is concerned about the syllogism which exists of necessity and into the tentative which is seen in the case of a syllogism resting on opinion and into the third rhetorical which is concerned about the enthymeme which is called an imperfect syllogism and still further into sophisms which would not be that which takes the lead in the eye of the philosopher but what is necessary of practical science one part is seen to be concerned about the care of morals and another about the regulation of a household and another relating to the state and its safety of these the first is called moral the second economical the third political of the contemplative one portion relating to what is unmoved and the first cause and such things as are divine is called theological another portion relating to the movement of the stars and their periodical revolutions and their return to the spot from whence they started and to the constitution of this world is physical but another portion viewed by means of geometry and the rest of learning is mathematical such then being the subdivision and portioning out of the kinds of philosophy we must first speak of the dialectical as it is agreeable to the doctrines of plato and first of all about the judicatory for respecting the faculty of judging and the judicatory powers of the soul since there is that which judges and likewise that which is judged there will be also that which is affected by them what a person would call judging properly one would call the act of judging the judging faculty but more commonly that which judges now this is twofold one by which a thing is judged the other through which it is of which the former would be the intellect that is in us the latter the organ that is naturally judicatory 
acting like a leader to what is true, but like a follower after what is false. Now, this organ is nothing else than natural reason, and, as regards things that exist, the philosopher would be called more clearly a judge by whom things are judged, but reason likewise is a judge through which the truth is judged, and which we have said is an organ. Now reason is twofold. One is altogether to be not made captive, and is accurate. The other is not to be deceived by falsehoods, as regards the knowledge of things. The former of these can be attained by God, but not by man, but the latter can be attained by man likewise. Now this is also twofold. One is conversant about things perceptible by mind, the other about things perceptible by a sense, of which the one conversant about things perceptible by mind is science and scientific reason, but the other conversant about things perceptible by a sense is opinionative and opinion. From whence the scientific possesses a firmness and stability as being conversant with principles firm and stable, but the credible and opinionative possess probability as being conversant about things not stable. Now of science, conversant about things perceptible by mind, and of opinion, conversant about things perceptible by a sense, the principles are intelligence and perception. Now perception is an affection of the soul that gives, like a leader, by means of the body a previous intimation of a power that has been affected. But when there has been produced in the soul by means of the organs of sense an impression according to its sensation, which is a sensation, then, in order that the impression may not be evanescent but permanent and preserved, the preservation of it is called memory. But opinion is the complication of memory and sensation. For when we meet for the first time with a thing perceptible by a sense, and a sensation is produced in us by it, and from this sensation memory, and we subsequently meet again with the same thing perceived by a sense, we combine the memory previously brought into action with the sensation produced a second time, and we say within ourselves, as for instance, say, Socrates, or a horse, or fire, or whatever thing there may be of such a kind. Now, this is called opinion through our combining the recollection brought previously into action with the sensation recently produced. And when these, placed along each other, agree, a true opinion is produced, but when they swerve from each other, a false one. For if a person, having a recollection of Socrates, and meeting with Plato, imagines, through some similarity, that he is meeting again with Socrates, and afterwards combines the sensation which he has received from Plato, as if he had received it from Socrates, with the recollection which he has of Socrates, the opinion would be a false one. Now that, in which memory and sensation are produced conjointly, Plato likens to an impression on wax. But when the soul, after remoulding by an exercise of thought the things which have been imagined out of sensation and memory, looks upon them as upon those out of which they have been produced, Plato calls this a painting to the life, and sometimes too a fantasy. 
but he calls the exercise of thought a talking of the soul to itself, and talking, he says, is a flowing from it, proceeding with a vocal sound through the mouth. Now, cogitation is an operation of the mind, while contemplating the first things perceptible by mind. And this seems to be twofold. One, while it was contemplating things perceptible by mind previous to the soul existing in the body, another, after it had been compelled to come into this body. Of these, one, that contemplated previous to the soul existing in the body was called cogitation, but after it existed in the body, that which was then called cogitation was now called physical thinking, as being a cogitation in a subjective soul. When therefore we say that cogitation is the beginning of scientific reasoning, we do not mean that which is so called now, but that which, as we have said, was then, when the soul existed apart from the body, called cogitation, but is now physical thinking. Now, physical thinking is called by him, Plato, both a simple science and a fledging of the soul, and sometimes recollection. From these sciences that are simple, physical, and scientific reason, which exists in nature, is composed. Since then there is reason existing, both scientific and opinionative, and there is a cogitation existing, and sensation, there are also things that are subjective to them, as, for instance, those that are perceptible by mind, and those likewise by a sense. Now, since of things perceptible by mind, some are primary as ideas, and some secondary as species, which, being impressed on matter, are inseparable from it, cogitation is twofold, one of the primary, and another of the secondary. And again, since of things perceptible by a sense, some are primary, as qualities, for instance, color, whiteness, but some according to accident, as white mixed with another color, and, moreover, a congregated mass, as fire, honey. So there is sensation, one part of which is of primaries, and called itself primary, and another of secondaries, and called secondary. Of the primaries perceptible by mind, cogitation judges, not without scientific reason, by means of a certain apprehension, and not by discourse in detail. But of the secondary, a sense judges, not without opinionative reason. But of the congregated mass, opinionative reason judges, not without a sense. Now, since the world, perceptible by mind, is a primary perceptible, but that, perceptible by a sense, is a congregated mass, of the world, perceptible by mind, cogitation judges, together with reason, that is not without reason. But of that perceptible by a sense, opinionative reason judges, not without a sense. Since then there is contemplation and action, right reason does not judge in a similar manner of things which fall under contemplation, and of what are to be done. But in the case of contemplation it looks to the truth, and to what is not in that condition, but in the case of things to be done, to what is appropriate, and what is strange, and what is being done. For by having a natural notion of what is beautiful and good, we make use of reason, and referring to these natural notions, 
as to some determinate standards we decide whether any of these things are in this state or in a different one five about the dialectic element and its aim the most elementary part of dialectic science he deems to be first the looking upon the essence of everything whatsoever and then upon what relates to its accidents it looks upon each thing as it is in itself either from above in the way of division or definition or from below in that of analysis but on the accidents of and that which exist in essences it looks either from the things contained through induction or from the things containing through a syllogism so that according to this account in dialectical science there is a dividing and a defining and an analyzing and moreover that which is inductive and syllogistic now the dividing is the separating a genus into its species or a whole into its parts as when we separate the soul into the rational and that affected by circumstances and again the so affected into the irascible and the concupiscible the division too of the voice is into the thing signified as when one and the same word is referred to many things and the division of accidents into things subjective as when we say of good things that some are so as regards the soul some as regards the body and some are external and that of things subjective into accidents as when we say of men that some are good some bad and some between both it is necessary then to make use of the separation of the genus into its species for the purpose of knowing thoroughly each thing by itself and what it is according to its essence but this cannot take place without a definition now a definition is produced from a division after this manner of the thing that is about to fall under a definition it is requisite to take in the first place the genus as in the case of man the genus is an animal and then to separate it according to its proximate differences descending to the species as for instance to rational and irrational mortal and immortal so that if the proximate differences are combined with the genus that proceeds from them there exists a definition of man but of analysis there are three kinds one is an ascent from things perceptible by a sense to the primary perceptible by mind another is an ascent through things fully shown and obscurely shown to propositions not to be demonstrated and without a middle and another is that which ascends from an hypothesis to principles not hypothetical now the first is something of this kind as if we should proceed from the beauty relating to the body to the beauty relating to the soul and from this to that in pursuits and from this to that in laws and then to the wide sea of beauty and then after having proceeded thus we should discover what remains namely beauty itself the second kind of analysis is something like this it is requisite to suppose what is to be sought and to see what things are before it and to show these from what come after by ascending up to those before until we arrive at the first and what is acknowledged and beginning again from this we shall descend to what is sought by the synthetical manner for instance i am seeking whether the soul is immortal 
and after supposing this very thing, I inquire whether it is always moved, and after showing this, whether what is always moved is self-moved, and again, after showing this, I consider whether what is self-moved is a beginning of motion, and then whether a beginning is unbegotten, which is laid down as being acknowledged, inasmuch as the unbegotten is likewise the indestructible, from which, as from a thing quite clear, making a beginning, I will put together a demonstration of this kind. If a beginning be a thing unbegotten and indestructible, that which is self-moved is a beginning of motion. Now the soul is a thing self-moved, it is therefore indestructible, and unbegotten, and immortal. But the analysis from an hypothesis is of this kind. A person inquiring into a matter lays down that very thing hypothetically, and he then considers what will follow upon the assertion so laid down, and after this, whether it is requisite to give a reason for the hypothesis, and, laying down another hypothesis, he inquires whether what had been previously laid down follows again the other hypothesis, and so he continues to do until he arrives at some principle not hypothetical. Induction is wholly a method by reasoning which proceeds from the like to the like, or from particulars to generals. Induction is particularly useful for exciting notions connected with physics. 6. On the kinds of the so-called propositions and on syllogism. Of that portion of reasoning which we call a proposition, there are two kinds. One is affirmation, the other negation. Affirmation is a thing of this kind. Socrates is walking about. But negation is a thing of this kind. Socrates is not walking about. Of affirmation and negation there is one kind relating to what is universal, another to what is particular. An affirmation relating to what is particular is of this kind. A certain pleasure is a good. A negation is of this kind. A certain pleasure is not a good. But an affirmation relating to what is universal is of this kind. Every disgraceful thing is an evil. A negation is of this kind. Not one of disgraceful things is a good. Of propositions, some are categorical, some hypothetical. The categorical are simple, as, every just thing is beautiful. But the hypothetical point out a consequence or repugnance. Plato makes use likewise of the operation of syllogisms when he is disproving or proving, when disproving falsehoods by a searching inquiry, and when proving truths by a certain kind of teaching. Now a syllogism is a reasoning in which, on some things being laid down, something necessarily turns out different from what has been laid down. Of syllogisms there are some categorical, others hypothetical, and others mixed. Of these the categorical are those of which the assumptions and conclusions are simple propositions. The hypothetical are those that proceed from hypothetical propositions, and the mixed are those that combine the other two. The man makes use, likewise, of demonstrative reasoning in the dialogues that covertly lead to truth, 
and of detective in those against the sophists and young persons, but the litigious against those called peculiarly litigious, as say, for instance, Euthydemus and Hippias. Of the categorical, whose forms are three, the first is that in which the common extreme is first the predicate, and then the subject. The second is in which the common extreme is the predicate in both. The third is in which the common extreme is the subject in both. Now the extremes I call the parts of propositions, as in the proposition, man is an animal, we call man an extreme, and so too animal. According to the first, second, and third forms, Plato frequently asks reasons. According to the first, he argues thus in the Alcibiades. Just things are honorable, but honorable things are good. Therefore, just things are good. According to the second, in the Parmenides, thus. That which has no parts is neither straight nor round but that which partakes of figure is either straight or round. Hence that which has no parts does not partake even of figure. According to the third, in the same book, thus. That which partakes of figure has some quality, and that which partakes of figure is bounded. Therefore that which has some quality is bounded. And in many books we shall find hypothetical reasons asked by him, and especially in the Parmenides we shall find them such as these. If the one has no parts, it has neither a beginning, a middle, nor an end, nor has it a limit, and if it has not a limit, neither does it partake a figure. If then the one has no parts, neither does it partake a figure. According to the second hypothetical form, which the majority say is the third, according to which the common extreme follows both the ends, he asks in this manner, If the one has no parts, it is neither straight nor round. But if it partakes a figure, it is either straight or round. If, then, it has no parts, it does not partake a figure. And yet, according to the third form, but the second with some persons, according to which the common extreme leads both, he asks thus in the Phaedo, If, after we have received the knowledge of what is equal, we have not forgotten it, we know it, but if we have forgotten it, we recall it to mind. And of the mixed he makes mention, which thus build up a reasoning from a consequence. If the one is a whole and limited, it has a beginning, a middle, and an end, and partakes of figure. Now, since the leading is so, so is the ending. Of those two that pull down from a consequence, it is most easy to contemplate the differences in a similar manner. When, therefore, a person looks carefully into the powers of the soul, and into the difference of men, and the kinds of reasoning, and acutely perceives which of them are suited to the soul in this way or that, and being what himself, by what, and what kind of reasonings he can be persuaded, such a person, if he lays hold of a fitting opportunity for the use of his faculties, will become a perfect orator, and his oratorical skill would be justly called the science of speaking well. 
and of sophisms too we shall find the method delineated by plato in the euthydemus if we carefully read the book so that it is indicated covertly what sophisms are in words and what in things and what are the solutions of them moreover he has pointed out secretly the ten categories in the parmenides and the other dialogues and he goes through the whole question of etymology in the cratylus and to speak simply the man is the most sufficient and wonderful in the business relating to definitions and divisions all of which show forth especially the power of the dialectic art the matter of the cratylus has a meaning of this kind plato inquires there whether names are from nature or imposition and he is satisfied that the correctness of names is referable to imposition not however simply so nor accidentally but so that the imposition follows upon the nature of the thing for the correctness of the name is nothing else than the imposition which agrees with the nature of the thing nor is yet the imposition whatever it may be of the name sufficient by itself for correctness nor is nature nor the first utterance of the voice but that which is compounded of both so that the peculiarity of every name is laid down according to its affinity with the nature of the thing for assuredly should what is accidental be imposed upon an accidental thing it would not signify what is correct as if for instance we should give to a man the name of a horse since to speak is some one of actions so that a person would not speak correctly by speaking in any manner soever but if he should speak in such a way as things exist naturally now since to give a name to a thing is a part of speaking so is a name a part of speech and to name a thing correctly or not would take place not according to any imposition whatsoever but according to a natural affinity with the thing hence he would be the best name imposer who should mark out by the name the nature of the thing for the name is an instrument of a thing not such as occurs accidentally but has a mutual relation by nature and through it we teach each other the things and we judge of them so that the name is something with a teaching and the instrument that judges of the existence of each thing as the shuttle is of weaving with regard to the dialectic art this too will take place to wit to make use of names correctly for as a man skilled in weaving would make use of a shuttle through knowing its work after a workman had manufactured it so the dialectician would after the name imposer had imposed the name make use of it in a proper and advantageous manner for it is the part of an artificer to make a rudder but of the steersman to make use of it properly so too the name imposer himself would make a proper use of the imposition if he were to make the imposition in the presence of the dialectician who knows the nature of the things that are the subject of the names and let so much be written down on the dialectical question seven on the contemplative kind and its division now let us speak in order of the contemplative kind of this we have said that one portion is theological another physical and another mathematical and that of the theological the end is the knowledge relating to the first causes and 
to what is the most above, and to principles, but of the physical to learn what is the nature of the universe, and what kind of animal is man, and what place he occupies in the world, and whether God has any forethought respecting the universe, and whether there are other gods under his orders, and what is the condition of man with respect to the gods. But of the mathematical, to consider the superficial and triply separated nature relating both to motion and an onward carrying on, and how it exists. Let, then, the contemplation of the mathematical portion be laid down summarily. Now, this was received by Plato for the acuteness of thought, as sharpening the intellect, and as furnishing an accuracy towards the consideration of things existing. That, too, which relates to numbers, being a portion of the mathematical, introduces an affinity, not such as is accidental, to an upward approach to things existing, and it almost relieves us from the error and ignorance relating to things perceptible by a sense, and it cooperates towards the knowledge of existence, and becomes well constituted as regards war by means of the theory of tactics. So, too, that relating to geometry is the most fit for a knowledge of the good, at least when a person pursues geometry, not for any practical purpose, but makes use of it as something additional so as to ascend to the ever-existing being, and not to waste his time about what is generated and destroyed. Geometry is, moreover, very useful, for after its second increase there follows the contemplation according to it, which has a third increase. Useful likewise as a fourth subject for learning is astronomy, according to which we shall contemplate the onward movement of the stars in heaven, and of heaven, and the artificer of night and day, and of months and years, from whence, by some familiar road, we shall search out the artificer of the universe, while proceeding from these subjects of learning, as from some basis and elements, by degrees to higher matters. And of music, too, we shall have a care by bringing the hearing of it to our ears. For, as the eyes are constituted with respect to astronomy, so is the hearing with respect to harmony. And, as by turning our thoughts to astronomy, we are led on the road from things seen to an existence unseen and perceptible by mind, so by listening to the voice of harmony we pass in like manner from things heard to those that are beheld by the mind itself. So that, unless we pursue in this way these subjects of learning, our contemplation on these matters will be incomplete and unprofitable and nothing worth. For it is meet to turn quickly from things to be seen and heard to those which it is possible to see by the reasoning faculty alone of the soul. For the looking into mathematical learning is a kind of prelude to the contemplation of things existing. For geometry and arithmetic and the sciences that follow upon them although desirous to lay hold of the being, yet are they in a dream respecting the being, and unable to see it, as a daydream, through being ignorant both of the principles of things, and of what are formed from those principles. They happen, nevertheless, to be very useful according to what has been stated. From whence Plato said that such subjects of learning were not sciences at all. 
The dialectic art is then a progression that naturally ascends from geometrical hypotheses to the first principles of things and non-hypothetical, from whence he called the dialectic art a science. But the subjects of such learning, he said, were neither opinion, through their being more clear than things perceptible by a sense, nor a science, through their being more obscure than the primaries perceptible by mind. But of bodies, he says, there is an opinion, of the primaries a science, but of such subjects of learning a mental notion. He lays down, too, that faith and fancy are something, and that of these faith is of things perceptible by a sense, but fancy of resemblances and kinds. Since then the dialectic art is the most powerful of the subjects of learning, inasmuch as it is conversant about things divine and stable, on this account it is ranked above the other subjects of learning, and is, as it were, the coping-stone and guard. 8. Respecting the primary matter. After this, let us speak consecutively about principles and theological contemplations, commencing from on high from the primaries, and descending from them, and looking into the creation of the world, and ending with the creation and nature of man, and let us speak first of matter. This, then, he calls a mold that receives every impression, and a nurse, and a mother, and a space, and a thing subjective and tangible, and without sensation, and to be apprehended by spurious reasoning, and that it possesses a peculiarity of such a kind that it receives all creations, and has the reputation of a nurse by nourishing them, and admits all forms, being itself without figure, and quality, and species, but moulded into such, and fashioned as if it were a mould, and put into a form by them, possessing no peculiar figure or quality, for there would not be anything properly prepared for various configurations and forms, unless it were itself without quality, and not partaking of these species which it must receive for we see that those who prepare sweet-smelling ointments from oil make use of the most sweet-scented, and those who are desirous of fabricating figures from wax or clay smooth down those substances and render them shapeless in order that they may receive new shapes. It is fitting then for matter which receives everything if it is about to receive forms universally to be subject to the possessing not one of their natures, but to be without quality, and without form, for the purpose of receiving forms, and being such it would be neither a body nor without a body, but a body in posse, as we understand of copper, that it is a statue in posse, because, after having received the form, it will become a statue. 9. Respecting ideas and the efficient cause while matter retains the character of a principle, Plato admits still other principles likewise, both the pattern-like, that is, relating to ideas, and that of God, the Father, and the cause of all things. Now idea is, as regards God, a mental operation by him, as regards us, the first thing perceptible by mind, as regards matter, a standard. But as regards the world, perceptible by a sense, a pattern. But as considered with reference to itself, 
an existence. For, universally, all that is generated according to a design ought to be generated for something. For if anything be produced from anything, as my own resemblance is from myself, there must be a pattern previously laid down. And, whether the pattern be within or without, each of the artificers, having the pattern in himself on every side, and in every manner, invests its form with matter. Now, persons define idea as the eternal pattern of things existing according to nature. For it does not please the majority of Platonists to admit that there are ideas of works of art, such as of a shield, or lyre, nor yet of things that are contrary to nature, such as of fever and cholera, nor of what exists according to a part, as of Socrates and Plato, nor of things of no value, such as of filth and rotten thatch, nor of that which exists with reference to something, as of a greater and superior. For ideas are the notions of God eternal and perfect in themselves. Now, that there are ideas in this way, too, they exhort us. For, whether the deity be mind or something mental, it has thoughts, and these two, both eternal and not to be turned aside. And, if this be so, there are ideas. For, if matter is on its own account, without a standard of measure, it must meet with a standard from something else, that is superior and without matter. Hence, if the antecedent is true, so is the consequent. And, if this be so, ideas are certain standards of measures without matter. Moreover, if the world is not such as it is from chance, not only has it been produced out of something, but by something, and not only so, but for something likewise. Now, what could that for which it has been produced have been else than idea? So that thus there would have been ideas. Moreover, if mind differs from true opinion, what is perceived by mind differs also from what is held as an opinion, and if this be so, things perceived by the mind are different from those held as opinions, so that there will have been the primaries perceived by mind, and the primaries perceived by a sense. And, if this be so, there are ideas. Now, mind does differ from a true opinion, so that there will have been ideas. End of section 9